Welcome to the Property Voice Podcast, helping you to navigate safely through the world of property investing. Get the lowdown and updates, insights and outcomes on all matters property with a splash of entertainment along the way. The Property Voice, a voice to trust among the crowd. Now, let's get started with your host, Richard Brown. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Property Voice podcast. My name is Richard Brown and as always, it's a pleasure to have you join me on the show again today. Now this week, I've had the subject of joint ventures very much on my mind. And so what I thought I'd do is share with you a few thoughts on the subject today in uh, this uh, this musings episode, this summer soundbite series. So uh, let's not uh, dither any longer. Let's get straight into the heart of the matter with Property Chatter. Okay, so let's get on with this week's featured topic with Property Chatter. Okay, so joint ventures. Let's start by looking at what they are, why they could be appealing or even beneficial, how best to structure them and how to protect everyone concerned. So first of all, what is a joint venture? Well, there's many descriptions, but I would describe it as two or more parties coming together bringing together a combination of different skills, attributes, experience, contacts, and resources for mutual gain. So a joint venture usually differs from a partnership, which whilst it's similar, it's often differentiated because partnerships are more enduring and and, and span a longer period of time and uh, work on multiple projects, whereas a joint venture is usually project-based. It's usually project by project by project. Uh, Or it could be for a set time period, or it could be for a subsection of somebody's business interests and not their entire business interests. So, um, in other words, it's it's a component. Uh, joint venture is usually a component period of time or for a project base, whereas a partnership, you know, generally speaking, is for a longer period of time. So, that's if you like how I differentiate and describe joint ventures. So, what are some of the benefits or indeed the drawbacks of a joint venture? Why would one, anybody want to do a joint venture anyway? I mean, surely the, the definition, by definition rather, that means we only get to share the rewards. So instead of keeping everything for ourselves, we, we have to give up half or even more than half. Why would anybody do that? <laughs> well, here's some of the reasons why it could be beneficial to consider doing exactly that. The first one is I often talk about plugging our gaps. And if you've heard me talk on one or two occasions, I've talked about this idea of plugging gaps. We all have gaps, whether it's in skills, experience, or other resources. So coming together with somebody else allows us to plug those gaps. Second of all, we get to share the workload, potentially. Depends on the nature of the agreement. But, you know, two heads are better than one. You know, working together, we can get more done. We just get to spread the task list around, around two or more people. So sharing the workload. Third, we have a sounding board, uh, someone to, to speak with, someone to discuss ideas with, somebody to sanity check the projects and the ideas that we're thinking about, and indeed an accountability partner. If we're working in partnership with somebody else, we have them to account to as well as ourselves. So we're more likely to pull our finger out basically and get things done. Equally, we can gain access to projects which are potentially not possible by doing it alone. 
very simplistically that could be just a financial reach we could do a bigger project than perhaps we could do on our own or we could do a development project where maybe we as an individual don't have that development experience so just a couple of examples gaining access to different projects which would not necessarily be possible by doing it all on our own and then I often talk about this thing called deal velocity and basically that means doing more deals more quickly so we can get greater deal velocity potentially by working in partnership with somebody else getting more projects getting through them recycling them faster uh, we can actually accelerate our growth so if you think about uh, just one simplistic illustration if we can do a flip project and it takes us uh, say uh, an average of nine months and we make an average of say 15k profit every nine months we're going to make 15k project uh, sorry profit from doing that but if we can double up with somebody else potentially we can do two deals at the same time we can accelerate our profits and as soon as we get a critical mass of uh, critical mass critical mass of our project uh, sorry investment fund together we can then start to do multiple projects all at the same time and therefore we're doing two at once four at once etc so we can increase our deal velocity then you know I guess finally we can generate a bigger result than we could could do by doing it alone and I often use this example of one plus one does not always equal two it could be more than two so just by the whole collaboration collaborative nature we can get more done so there's some of the reasons why we would might uh, we might think it's beneficial or we might consider doing a joint venture but equally are there any drawbacks well yeah there could be and it could be said that the, as I mentioned and alluded to earlier, the pie has to be divided up into smaller parts. And so the project returns would need to be big enough, obviously, to satisfy the needs of each party. Similarly, some people are best suited to working alone or as a leader in a team rather than as a partner or a team member. That said, in some cases, one joint venture partner could be more passive, let's say. And so this, this could be figured out in that case. A, an example of that could be someone who's just more or less looking for a return on their money and doesn't want to be active in a project. The other party, who could be the leader type, the go-getter, the, you know, the, the hungry worker, could be doing all the work. And then the, the, the finance partner in this illustration could be much more passive so there are you know it doesn't necessarily mean if you're the the lone wolf that you can't work in a joint venture partnership it just needs to be the roles need to be differentiated in such a way that they could be worked out so yeah it's not necessarily for everybody that's for sure and if we don't know the people we're getting involved with then there could be problems potentially of trust or a clash of personalities that emerge so there, there are a couple of things to watch out for and even even in fact if we if we do know the people working together on projects involving money is a business partnership and that often changes the nature of the relationship that we had with the people involved sometimes it's friends and family but obviously if we enter into a business joint venture then we're talking about a business arrangement not just a friendship or something like that and if we've not clearly documented things and discussed you know what we're looking to achieve from the outset and maybe what to, what what happens if things don't go wrong uh, sorry go wrong <laughs> then we can run into difficulties of expectation and interpretation most of all so if we don't have a real understanding of how to work out a dispute or a deadlock situation then that can cause some problems quite clearly so so who could we partner with who could these joint venture partners be and where could we find them so the most common and obvious people to partner with that many people think about are friends and family, people we already know well. And I've seen a number of joint ventures set up this way, and that includes myself with some of my own friends and family. 
As I mentioned earlier, the business and financial relationship created by the joint venture changes the nature of the relationship with that friend or family member. So take care to discuss everything in detail and then get it in writing just to avoid any problems you know, that could arise later on. Often friends and family never think they could fall out with one another, but uh, trust me, it can happen. So it's best just to still be professional if you like and get things documented between the parties, but it's certainly a good place to start. So the next category is probably people in our personal network. And this could be work colleagues or business associates, friends of friends, fellow property investors and so on. And clearly, whilst we may know these people, often we will know them less than, say, friends and family. And this is where due diligence comes into play. Probably does to some extent with friends and family, but definitely more so here. So getting to know the people we're doing business with. I'll talk a little bit more about due diligence in a minute. And the final category, I guess, just to keep things simple in this musings episode, is uh, what could we describe as everybody else in the world? <laughs> People we do not have a direct connection with, but we encounter or seek out in one way or another. An example might be a business angel. Uh, that's a business angel is usually someone who's looking specifically to invest in businesses. So um, we might not know them in advance, but we could come across them in some way. And that could be someone offering finance or other inputs into a business. And here even more care needs to be taken to avoid the, uh, the scammers and the sharks that are out there. But I, I did do an episode on avoiding the scammers and sharks. So tune into that one just to, uh, to check that out before, before venturing too far. But it does bring it up the point of due diligence a little bit more. And we have talked about this in the past. So I'm just going to go top line here specifically for joint ventures. So if we need to get to know and understand one another. And that's what's called due diligence, of course. And there's a term used in financial services that you might have come across. For example, if you've been applying for a mortgage and you've, you've used a broker, they may have used a term that they call know your client. And that's something that's required now of anyone giving financial advice is to get to know their client. And it's, you know, to avoid things like anti-money laundering and that type of thing. So it's, it's come out of that industry. But we can apply the same principle of, of know your client from financial services to know your joint venture partner here in this case. So it's just getting to know each other a little bit more than just, you know, a chat over a pint or something like that. But of course, we can indeed start with a chat over a pint. It doesn't have to literally be that. It's just a case of getting to know them a little bit better. So that means meeting with them, talking to them a few times before we get to do business with them. You know, don't just meet them and go, oh, they look like a great person to work with. I think I'll throw money in their direction or I'll allow them to throw money in my direction. No, no, no. Just, you know, get to know them, understand how they tick their, their values and uh, their ethics and that sort of thing. Equally, we need to understand their reputation. You know, who do we know that knows them already? Or what is their public reputation like? Do we know anyone that knows them? We need to check out their reputation. Similarly, the experience and track record. What have they done before? Do they have sample projects that they can share with us? We need to check those things. The internet and social media is actually quite a good place often to check people out. I've always mentioned Google is your friend, so uh, Google them. And as I say, go a couple of pages deep. Similarly, though, go on to social media and forums and, you know, see where they hang out. Perhaps they've got a, a public uh, presence. They communicate in, uh, in, these, in these places. See what they say. See what their views and opinions are. And equally, see what uh, reactions they get to the posts and comments that they make. It's often quite revealing, I have to say. 
Then in terms of regulation, there are one or two things to be aware of here. And uh, where the partners don't know each other already as friends and family, then they do need to be aware that joint ventures are now regulated. Um, that, that's been a recent change in the last couple of years. And they're regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority specifically when there's some kind of profit sharing arrangement in place. So if it's a fixed interest return or a fixed payment return, the, the regulation doesn't apply. But where there is some degree of variability, a gain share or profit share, as I mentioned, then indeed the Financial Conduct Authority or the FCA do regulate. And the relevant uh, term to look out for if you do your research is PS13-3. <laughs> That's one of the FCA's regulations that governs this particular area, PS13-3. But the basic rule says where there's no variable profit share involved, then you basically you're good to go. But however, if there is, then in order to present a joint venture opportunity to someone else, so it's really about marketing joint ventures. So to prevent, uh, sorry, present a joint venture opportunity to someone else, the person presented to needs to be what's called a high net worth or a sophisticated investor. And uh, there's, there's some definitions of that for them to be you know, pitched effectively for a joint venture. So know them, good to go. Don't know them, high net worth or sophisticated uh, investor. That's obviously when you're dealing with individuals. But um, the other caveat, if you're dealing with people on a, a business level, so it's like for a company, a company to company or an individual pitch to a company, then that becomes a business transaction instead and it's not covered by the regulations. So they're, they're the rules really. Friends, family, high net worth, sophisticated investor or business. And then you're good to go. In terms of lenders, something else to watch out for is that mortgage lenders and other financial institutions don't usually like uh, any party involved in the transaction other than the borrowers involved. So, for example, if you are looking to borrow money for a deposit, the lender concerned would either want the, the uh, provider of the deposit funds to be on the mortgage, so uh, as a joint borrower, or to make uh, a declaration that they've got no interest, that, that private lender, if you like, has got no interest in the property whatsoever. And usually that's by, you know, stating that the deposit funds were a gifted deposit or uh, potentially are secured on an alternative property and there's no, you know, interest they have on the property concern. So there is this complication. If there's lenders, if you know, borrowing involved on the property and joint ventures, the, there's some careful steps that need to be taken to make sure everybody is, uh, is protected. And of course, uh, we're not uh, falling foul of any, any regulations. So there's just some of the steps that we can take in terms of due diligence. But as I mentioned, I've talked about due diligence in the past, so please go back and revisit the episodes uh, that I've mentioned there, there as well. It's really a top line uh, for the musings episode here. So what about the people we're working with, working with joint venture partners? What, what are the things that we should really be aware of? Well, what I would usually say is that it involves exploring common goals and objectives and expectations, but equally common values, personality traits, an attitude to risk. So we need to know we're kind of rowing in the right direction with people who've got a common interest and goal and that we can actually work with, share the same values as us. And indeed, the personality traits are suited to the, the partnership. I'm not saying we have to have the same personality. Actually, to some extent, you know, complementary personality is often useful because, as I'm going to go and mention, there are different attributes that the partners would bring to bear. The other point, of course, is the attitude to risk, and it's very it's, it's very important to understand that uh, and have a have a discussion about attitude to risk because if you've got a heavy risk taker and a and a very low risk taking uh, partner, then you know it can prove uh, problematic. Let's say, but the best joint ventures work when the parties bring complementary attributes to the venture. 
And here are some of the, the key attributes that are often brought to the joint venture by each partner. Uh, I call it my top five, if you like. We've got time, contacts, skills, experience, and money. Now, there are other attributes, but these are just some of the main ones that I wanted to cover today. Time, contacts, skills, experience, and money. And it's just to give you some further thought. The, the point being that these joint ventures, to be successful, will need all of these attributes. And it might be the case that, uh, you know, it could be the case, in fact, that four out of five of these attributes are covered by the partners, but there's maybe just one missing. And, you know, what I have in mind is potentially uh, they have everything apart from the contacts. So what they could do in that case, the joint ventures, is um, is either fulfill the, the gap of the missing attribute, in this case contacts, either by bringing in another partner, of course, there are implications that we need to go through the steps, need to make sure that the returns are good enough, etc. Um, alternatively, we, we can decide to plug the gap of contacts in a different way. We could potentially buy in contacts in some way, like a deal sourcer or something like this. Or we could uh, agree that one or both of the partners take that on as a responsibility you know, to, to plug the gap themselves. So that could mean things like one or both of the partners attending networking meetings to find people with the contacts that we're looking for. And development projects and sourcing and this sort of thing are just some examples of that. So we can, we can plug some of these gaps. Obviously, I guess if we've got, uh, if, if we bring the partners together and there's a gap in time or money or experience or skills, it's going to be a little bit more difficult, let's say, to plug that gap. So, it is important to try and get probably all five of those, um, you know, attributes together in the partnership for it to be successful. And definitely need to think about uh, if there's still a gap, how is that going to be plugged? But the long and short, as I mentioned, is to get the five top attributes covered in the partnership as far as is possible. Now, sometimes you know partners can come together are too similar. So there are several gaps, you know, noted, and and the decision really has to be: is the partnership viable, or what needs to be done to make it so? It might still be the case that the, there's a way to plug the gap, as I mentioned, and I've seen this actually with friends and family, you know, joint ventures in particular. So often, you know, maybe there's uh, there's a couple of the components that have come together, but there's some significant gaps, particularly with contact skills and experience. And in these cases, the partners do need to find a way to to plug those gaps. As I say, it could be through bringing another partner or plugging the gap in another way. Now, experience is probably the hardest one uh, when you've got two partners together who don't have experience. You, don't, you can't just say, "Well, I'm going to get the I'm going to get the experience and bring it to the partnership." It kind of doesn't work that way. Obviously, experience is based on doing pro several projects over a period of time, so that's the hardest one to get. So uh, there needs to be either they go, "Well, we're just going to go in this together, and we're going to get the experience as we go." Alternatively, find some way in which we can uh, gain or access or leverage the experience of someone else without necessarily them being in the partnership or indeed inviting them into the partnership. So that's the people side of it. Then in terms of structure, the joint venture, um, you know, this is really how we document things. And I do strongly suggest that regardless of who we're in partnership with, we do look to put things down in writing. Um, you know, believe me, things can go wrong. Expectations just can be misunderstood. Communication gaps can appear. So it just makes sense to get it jotted down in writing, as formal as that might sound, even if it's your best mate from school. So <laughs> definitely look to do that. And um, some of the common documents that uh, that can be used that not necessarily all of these apply in every case, but I just want to talk about some of the common ones that could apply. First one is a joint venture agreement. And this really sets out the general understanding of the joint venture, such as who's involved 
how the arrangement will be made in terms of roles and contribution, what's expected to be delivered, how the arrangement will be ended or exit options if you prefer, and what happens if things don't go to plan. So there's some of the component parts of a, of a joint venture agreement. And a joint venture agreement you know, can cover several projects, which I'll touch on to now when I talk about my next set of documentation. Another document that's often used in joint ventures is what's called a declaration of trust. Sometimes it's called a deed of trust. They're, those terms are sort of interchangeable. And uh, so this declaration of trust is, is optional. But it's an agreement that can put in, be put in place between the parties to, um, to record the beneficial ownership of the property as opposed to the legal ownership of the property. So sometimes one partner will buy in their own name, but there'll be an arrangement between um, themselves and another party, uh, you know, which actually says, well, there's going to be a 50-50 share in this, in this property, even though potentially it's being bought in one partner's name. So the, the 50-50 that I just talked about is the beneficial ownership the um, one party owning that property and having their details recorded at a land registry and that sort of thing is the legal ownership. So this declaration of trust basically separates, separates sorry, the beneficial ownership that's involved. And uh, as I mentioned, the joint venture agreement is usually a wide agreement, whereas a declaration of trust is a very specific and narrow agreement restricted to one property. And it might not be possible to enter into this agreement, particularly if there's financing involved, because um, the the lender will ask you to declare that there's nobody else who has an interest in that property at the time the loan is taken out. So um, it the, it can be done subsequently um, to the loan being taken out, but careful legal advice is needed really to make sure things are structured properly in this case. The next thing that uh, that could be involved is a legal charge. And this is where one party places a, a financial charge on the property concerned, and this is recorded at land registry. In, if you like, think of it just like a mortgage lender would do. So the mortgage lender will lend money, <clears throat> but they will take the property as security, and they will record their interest in that property by placing a charge and have that charge re recorded at land registry. So if we take a, a lender out of the equation, just put a joint venture partner in place, a joint venture partner can still have a charge and have that property or have their interest rather noted at land registry. So what that basically means is that if the property is ever sold, the charge holder needs to be paid before anybody else. Now there are different types of charges, first charge, second charge, etc. So there, there can be a ranking or a priority of legal charge and, uh, and they can be used interchangeably. So again, I'm just giving a top level overview. There's a lot of detail obviously that I'm not talking about here just to make you aware of the types of things that are involved. And I guess the final category, I've talked about a legal charge being registered with land registry, but there are other types of interests that can be recorded at land registry as well. And this could be a restriction on title, or it could be a notification uh, if there's any uh, change in, in uh, title requested, uh, or ch sorry, change in ownership re requested. The idea here is just to prevent someone doing something with a property that another party or a beneficial owner of the property has not agreed to. So there's a, there's a few steps there and as you can see there's a, a few agreements and there's a slight disting, distinction and difference between them uh, and of course legal advice is probably uh, very wisely recommended in, in these situations. So I guess in conclusion the, the, the subject of joint ventures is a big topic. It's often brought up, brought up in forums and online communities as well as on the property circuit most generally or more generally. 
and they can certainly help to propel your property business forward by combining the strengths or the, the attributes, if you like, of two or more partners. And that's why it's so attractive. However, they're not to be entered into lightly and equally they're not suitable in all situations, as might be apparent. However, for the right partners, bringing together the right mix of attributes mentioned, the top five as I mentioned earlier, along with the right due diligence steps and the right documentation in place, they can indeed be extremely rewarding and beneficial for our property business. Now this musing is not intended to be an all-encompassing you know, description and, and uh, summary, if you like, of, uh, of joint ventures. It's intended to give an overview of the subject for sure, so we're probably going to return to this subject at a later date, I'd imagine. And finally, the um, just to make you aware, the Property Voice does actually work with people on joint venture arrangements. If you've ever seen our website, um, you, if you look under some of the mentoring options and some of the investment tabs, you'll see that for sure. So if it's an area that's of interest to you or you just want to get a little bit more advice, really, I'm happy to do that, then just ping an email to partner at thepropertyvoice.net and we can share a little bit more about that and, uh, and start a conversation for sure. So there we go. It's uh, it's another of the summer soundbite musings in the bag, and uh, I hope you found that interesting. I know it's a bit of a top level um, discussion, but that's the idea really with some of these, uh, particularly the summer soundbite series. So hopefully that's being good as I mentioned. Now as always, the show notes are going to be over at the website www.thepropertyvoice.net. But right now, that's all for me for this week. I'd just like to say thanks very much for listening as always on the Property Voice podcast. And so it's ciao ciao. Thank you for listening today. Now head over to thepropertyvoice.net for more inspirational content and get updates through our mailing list. Join us next time on the Property Voice podcast. And if you enjoyed the show, please don't forget to rate us on iTunes.